dismiss the kindergarten and first grader through the back. And I could have um, sworn I heard a an, an amen there at the end, verse 12, or actually, um, yeah, verse 12, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. I thought, you know, my high school friends down here front were like, yes, it's in the Bible, and tell my parents that this afternoon when they're asking me to study hard or college students who are on break. Well, we're here this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of wisdom, and we're really using this book, just looking at it today as a preface or a way to propel us into looking at a book we're going to look at for the next five or six weeks, the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a small book buried in the 12 minor prophets, and so you can spend the week trying to find that. So you're ready next week. And even though it's a small book, it it actually addresses a very contemporary issue or a contemporary problem, and, and that is, how do you trust God when your circumstances are crumbling? I mean, a lot of people find themselves in that position at any time during history, but certainly in the last 12 months, there are a number of you all who have felt that way, whether it's economically or relationally or otherwise. How do, how do you trust in God when things around you begin to crumble? And so Habakkuk has to ask and answer that question. He was certain God was going to move in a particular direction, and what he was informed of was that God was not not only going to move in that direction, he was going to move in the opposite direction. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. You were sure, because you've been reading your Bible and praying, that God was going to say, we're going to go this way. And not only does he not go that way, he goes the opposite way. And at that point, now what do you do with your relationship with God? Well, for Habakkuk, it raises all kinds of questions. The opening line of the book, How long, O Lord? Just a few sentences later, God, why do you stand idly by? And probably one of the strongest statements in the Bible, one of the strongest questioning of God comes from this book. And Habakkuk says, God, I thought you were from everlasting. I thought you could see all things. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up the righteous? I think underlying Habakkuk's questions really is a deeper question, and that is a question about God's wisdom. And how that connects or doesn't connect to our wisdom because it just seems painfully obvious that if you were just looking at the situation on the surface, this is the way it should happen. And yet it doesn't happen that way. The wicked do swallow up the righteous at different points. Things happen that you just can't explain and so you're sort of left with these questions that bubble up in your mind and sometimes you feel afraid to ask. But Habakkuk, thankfully... He asks a lot of the same questions that we have. And he's trying to wrestle with this tension between God's wisdom and our wisdom. And so I want to just spend this uh, few minutes together this morning looking at the book of Ecclesiastes and trying to wrestle with this 
confrontation that we have sometimes between what our wisdom is and what God's wisdom is. J.R. Packer wrote a very famous book, and if you haven't read it, you should get it. It's a book called Knowing God, and it's exceptionally helpful on a number of different uh, avenues, but particularly in terms of God's wisdom. And he has a definition that I want to use for us, and that is in your insert. So it's helpful if you just want to follow along this morning. We don't always have an insert, but I thought sometimes these definitions, they can get a little bit wordy, and if you're not looking at them at the same time, you can kind of get lost. So let's just look at the definition. God's wisdom is not is not sharing in all God's knowledge and having insight into the meaning and purpose of events going on around us. Godly wisdom is not possessing the ability to see why God has done what he has done and what he is going to do next. Godly wisdom is a disposition to confess that God is wise and to cleave to him and live for him in the light of his word through thick and thin. You see, what Habakkuk has to learn and what some of us will have to learn is that God doesn't intend for you to understand everything that he's doing. See, a lot of times we feel like, well, if I've got godly wisdom, then what that means is I definitely understand God, I definitely understand where he's going, and I'm going in that direction. And that's not true. Godly wisdom is trusting that God's going in a certain direction and that whatever direction that's going in, that's good enough for you. And sometimes on this plane, you can say, well, that seems to make sense to me. But even when it doesn't make sense, then godly wisdom says, I'm not going to trust in my wisdom. Whose wisdom am I going to trust in? I'm going to trust in God's. Why? Because my ways are not His ways all the time. My thoughts are not His thoughts all the time. So somebody who really exercises, exercises godly wisdom, it doesn't mean that you understand everything that God is doing. It means that whatever God is doing, you're trusting that He is wise. And that you're willing to follow in His footsteps, whether it's through thick or through thin. Packer draws his definition really from his study in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in a segment of the Old Testament called the Books of Wisdom. There are five books, and they're known as the Book of Wisdom, or the Books of Wisdom, and Ecclesiastes is one. Ecclesiastes is a Greek word that means preacher. That's why you see it in chapter 1, verse 1, the preacher or the teacher. And so here is a godly man who's imparting wisdom like a preacher would in a sermon. Really, it's meant to, you think of the book as just one sermon. Here's a man 3,000 years ago that's going to deliver the sermon today. And so what he's doing here is he's going to impart this godly wisdom to a young audience, a young congregation. He's going to give away the fruits of his experiences, his walk with God, by giving this sermon out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so let's just look at that again. It's in your outline, this quick outline that we'll go over in just a few moments. The basic premise sort of stands like bookends at the 
at the uh, beginning of the book and at the end of the book. And here's, the, here's his premise. Is he's looking out across the world, this wise man that tradition attributes to being Solomon. Here's his assumption, or here, here's what he has seen. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then he, he, he's like a good preacher. He's going to give you several points. That's what he's seeing. And then he's going to give you several points of why that is. And we're just going to look at a few of them. Pleasure and satisfaction, wisdom, work, wealth. All of those things he's chased after. And he's concluded those things are vain. And then he's going to give us a conclusion or some application. And we'll get to those, and you can see those on your outline in chapters 11 and 12. So it makes a great sermon. He's going to give his point. He's going to give some exposition on his point. He's going to remind the people at the end of his point and then say, okay, before you go home, here's some conclusion. Here's some application to this wisdom. So we want to walk through that. The basic premise, vanity of vanities. You know this is this double wording is a uh, literary device to say, hey, this is, this is the real thing. This isn't just a vanity. This is the vanity of all vanities. And so when you see Jesus as the King, you don't just say He's the King. What do you say? He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. You're not just saying He is the King. It's like some way you've got to say it's just more than just that. And Solomon, this wise old pastor is looking down at his young congregation and he's saying, trust me guys, you don't have to do what I've done. You can rely on my experience that these things that I've seen, these things that I've done, they're vanity. They're not just the vanity, they're the vanity of all vanities. And so that's his premise in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says it's like chasing after the wind. A striving after the wind. One of the seminary professors uh, said this, it's kind of like a kid chasing uh, a soap bubble. You've done this, you have the, one of those little wands and you blow the bubbles and the bubbles come out and the kids chase them and they're screaming with delight and oh this is great and then they grab them and what happens? Empty. And so what do they do? They turn back and they tell the person who's blowing the bubbles, they're hyperventilating now, trying to get these bubbles out, give me some more. But it's the same thing that happens each time you, you run after and say, oh, this is so delightful and I can't wait till I get my hands on it. And you get your hands on the thing and then what happens? Pop. And it's just empty. It seems like it's going to be so satisfying. It seems like what you want and yet, when you get your hands on it, the preacher, the wise man, is saying it's just vanity. Second thing is he gives an exposition of this premise. For the benefit of the young congregation, the preacher recounts the soap bubbles he's chased during his lifetime. And you can read through that later today, all of them. I just want to pick off a few. And again, he's... He's trying to say, look, you don't have to try it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever uh, been in a situation where like a guy wins, wins the lottery. And then somebody says, yeah, but you know how many people have miserable lives after they win the lottery? Have you ever been in this discussion? 
And even if you don't say it, you, you, you think, but I'd like to give it a try. I mean, I know it's bad for most of those people. I, I still, you know, I'd love to give it a try. And, and here the wise man is saying, you, you don't have to give it a try. You, you can borrow my experiences, and trust me, your experience will be the same as mine. I have a good friend that was on a trip with, it was a mission trip, and Zachary was on the trip, and we were talking about sort of the vanity of things that we had done when we were younger. And he looked at my son, I really appreciated this advice, and he said, Zachary, I've got plenty of stupid stories. You don't need to create your own. You just come and ask me, I'll give you a real stupid story, and you can take it with you. Don't, you don't need to recreate stupidity. There's plenty of it out there. Just borrow somebody else and say, yeah, that's really stupid. And that's exactly what the, this preacher is saying is, I've done all of the things you would want to do. And trust me, they just end up being like the soap bubbles. They just pop when you get to them. And here's just a few of them. And I'm just going to preach his sermon, Pleasure and Satisfaction, chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. Here's what he says. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees. I I made for myself pools which waters the forest and grows the trees. And I bought slaves. I had great possessions, verse 7. I had more than anybody else had before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures. I got singers, both men and women. I had many concubines. Verse 10, listen to this. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them, keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. I mean, he's given himself a shot at everything pleasurable. And here's his conclusion. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had extended in doing it. And behold, this is what I saw, all was vanity. It was like striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So pleasure and satisfaction was the soap bubble. Looked like it was going to satisfy. He got it, and it was a vapor. It was empty. Wisdom, chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his heads, but the fool walks in darkness. And then here's his conclusion. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. What happens to the fool will happen to me. When they have been, why then have I been so very wise? This also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance. For as the wise, as is the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. In the days to come, both will have long been forgotten. The wise man dies like a fool, so I hated life. What is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. In chapter 3, he goes on to say that man's fate is like that of the animal's. It's not just that my fate as a wise man is the same one as the fool's. My fate as a wise man is the same one as my pet. I I look and say, 
under the sun, when I just am looking from this horizontal perspective, I'm looking around, and it really doesn't matter that much. I mean, you're, you're better off a little bit for some wisdom because you, while you're walking, you have some light, but in the end, nobody remembers you. It doesn't matter if you're a fool or as smart as guy. Nobody remembers your name. And so whatever you have there in your wisdom and your academic degree in the end, it's like a soap bubble. You get it and then it pops. And it's just not satisfying. Third, work, chapter 2, verse 18. Here he just begins with his, his conclusion. He tells you what he's going to conclude at the, at the beginning. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. And here's what I saw. That I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he'll be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, somebody who's got great power, that man must also leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity. You might toil, you might have success, you might be powerful, but you know what? In a few years you're just going to hand that off to somebody, they might be a fool. And it's just in vain. If you're doing it all underneath the sun. Finally, wealth. Chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves money never has enough. We, we just need to plaster that on our foreheads. Whoever loves wealth is never, never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. You've, you may have heard this. Um, if you ask somebody how much more money that they need, I mean, it doesn't matter where your income bracket is. They say, I just need about 15% more. You know, most people, they wouldn't say, well, I actually need $2 million. They would just say, wherever they am, if I could just have about 15% more, then I'd be okay. But you know what? When you get 15% more, what's your answer? I, I need about 15% more. As goods increase, I gave this the best amen in my office as I, all week. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. I mean, I remember being in college and I was the only consumer. And so when I went to the Peddler Steakhouse and I walked out with $80 in cash in my pocket, I was like, Woohoo! I have made it! I've got $80 in my pocket that I can spend however I want. Now I might have a thousand times that much. And what do I have? I have a lot of consumers. I'm not pointing in any general direction. I'm just saying I have a lot of consumers now. I have, whether it's my mortgage or my family, I have a lot more people trying to eat at that same amount of money. And it doesn't matter as that increases, as your wealth increases, people find out that you have it and they start nibbling away at it. They start wanting to consume your wealth. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. I love that little phrase. You, you can't even carry it in your hand. You can't, 
You can't carry the smallest little coin in your hand when you get to heaven's shores. There's nothing here that you're going to take with you. Nothing. So it's worth pausing here, just having heard the meat of his sermon, to examine yourself. Allow allow this old preacher from 3,000 years ago to examine you. Pleasure and satisfaction. Education. Power. Money. Have you put any of those as your target? If you have, trust this man. Trust the Scriptures. Vanity. When you get your hands around it, it's going to be like a soap bubble. And you're going to have to turn around and ask somebody, hey, give me some more things to chase after. It's going to be like chasing after the wind. Well, then he concludes chapters 11 and 12. And his conclusion, obviously, is you live your life under the sun. This phrase that reoccurs through the whole book of wisdom. If you're living your life under the sun, then it's vanity. But wisdom, real godly wisdom, is exercising your li- is exercising the understanding that there's more to life than just underneath the sun. If all there is is this life, then it's vain. But if there's something else, if there's a life beyond the life underneath the sun, then the things that seem so vain take on a different significance, take on a different importance. Let me just read a couple of verses here. And again, I think they're in your uh, outline. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. This is what he concludes even about chasing after the knowledge of God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 God has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Ecclesiastes 11.5 As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You see, the preacher is trying to make it perfectly clear that we're never going to possess the wisdom to know exactly what God's doing all the time. And if you're chasing after that wisdom, if you're chasing after an understanding that God's going to let you in on every little nook and cranny, and you're going to get clear understanding and clarity about every issue in your life, then you know what you're chasing is? Chasing after the wind. It's vanity. You're going to have to just trust in God, that He alone is wise, and that when you do not understand, you can exercise godly wisdom by saying, but I trust in a God who does understand all things. That's what Habakkuk's going to teach us. And here's his closing advice. Number one, remember your Creator in the days of your, your youth. This is a, such a great passage here. Uh, as you look at it, this chapter 12, it's worth going home and just seeing all these analogies that he uses to the sun and the stars and um, all these things are really about the failing of the human body. The, the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. I'm, I'm losing my sight. In the day, verse 3, when the keepers of the house tremble, that's your hands, and the strong men are bent down. 
and the grind. I like this. The grinders cease because they are few. What's he talking about? My teeth are falling out of my head. I can't get my grinders to move anymore because they just don't have many grinders again. I mean, if you have one tooth, you don't have a grinder because you've got to have another one on the bottom to make that work. And then uh, the doors of the street are closed. I, I can't hear things anymore. I, I get afraid in verse 5. Uh, the almond tree blossoms. When you see an almond tree blossom, it's all white. So what is he talking about? Gray hair. The grasshopper drags himself along. This person who used to just bounce around now, they shuffle along. And desire fails. It's actually a better Hebrew than that. It's the caperberry. The caperberry was, was, was known as an aphrodisiac. And so when that desired fail, you'd go over and get the little blue pill. I mean, the little caperberry. And you would take the little caperberry. But even though you're taking the caperberry, guess what? No desire. He's describing this aging man. And he says, remember the Creator in the days of your youth. Such good advice for the young people. See, because what happens today at a high school or a college campus, if you really want to live the good life, what do you have to ditch? The God life. I mean, if you want to be large and in charge, if you want to be wild, like that's really living life, then you've got to ditch the God thing and go for the world. And, and what's the truth? The very opposite. Life is found in Jesus Christ. Chasing after the things of the world is death. And if you went to high school or you went to college and you started chasing after things that this culture thought was important, what would you chase after? Wisdom. Pleasure. Power. Wealth. It's the same things. You see how contemporary this passage still is for us today? All the things that you would want to invest your life in, you think they're going to bring you life, they're going to bring you death. They're going to be like a bubble. And so the, the preacher is saying, young men, young women here, start living your life right now for Jesus. Malcolm Muggeridge was a great journalist in England, and he came to faith much later in his life. Listen to the title of his biography or his autobiography, sorry. Chronicles of a Wasted Life. Well, I don't want that to happen to you. I mean, if you're here and you're 15 or 20, don't, don't wait till you're 45 or 50 and think, well, I'm going to have some life now, and then when I get to 45 or 50 or 60, then... You'll be writing the same book. Chronicles of a wasted life. A life lived for soap bubbles, you might say. So remember the Creator in the days of your youth. Secondly, fear God. We talked about this last week, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ. Paul's advice to the younger Timothy in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Ecclesiastes 12.14, last verse of the whole book. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing. Finally, keep his commands. We talked about this all summer looking at 1 John. You walk in the light. So what's God's will? What what does it mean to possess godly wisdom? You're a young person. You don't know which way to go. Your, your life is unraveling. Your circumstances are crumbling. What do I do right now? You pray and say, God, turn on the light so I know exactly what you're doing in all these circumstances? No. You live for Jesus. You walk according to His Word. And you live in light of His appearing. You see, so often we, we, try to get, we try to get it more complicated than that. You want the special prayer. You want the, the little nugget that's going to turn all the lights on. And God says, hey, I'm not going to do that. I don't actually even intend to do that. What I intend you to do is that when you don't know the way, you'll trust that I know the way. When you don't know the truth, you'll read about the truth in the Scriptures. That you'll understand that you're not just living your life underneath the sun here. You're living your life in light or in view of the day that He comes back. And all of this time here is going to seem like a mist. The New Testament, we read Ecclesiastes in light of the New Testament. The person who brings life, Jesus Christ. He who has the Son of God has life. And so we come to the table this morning and we are bringing our sorrows and our burdens and we're trusting that Jesus Christ is the answer. He doesn't just have the answer, but He is the answer. Looking to Him is an exercise and godly wisdom. Because He has come to make a new covenant between man and God by giving His body, saying, Come, you who have trusted in Me, bring your crumbling circumstances, bring your questions, and know that I may not answer them the way you want, but I will never leave you. I will never forsake you.